I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We're here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. In this episode, I'm with Stacey Raphael and we're talking about the book Orbiting Jupiter by Gary Schmidt. This is one of my all-time favorite YA books and my students loved it too. Some of the themes we touch upon include students impacted by trauma, unintended bias by teachers in schools, books for reluctant readers, and cows. Yes, cows. But first, what is Vermont Ed Reads? Big news listeners, Vermont Ed Reads has spun off from the 21st century classroom and is now available as a podcast in its own way. In each episode, I sit down with a Vermont educator or author, and we have a conversation about one book that we think is relevant to Vermont learners. Sometimes they're education books, sometimes they're popular press books, and sometimes they're books written for young adolescents themselves. We hope you'll find something to learn from in each episode. If you're interested in being a guest or you want to recommend a book, email me at vtedreads at tarrantinstitute.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at vtedreads. Now, on to our episode. Today, I'm with Stacey Raphael, and we'll be talking about the book Orbiting Jupiter by Gary D. Schmidt. Thanks for joining me, Stacey. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I am a teacher at Champlain Valley Academy. It's a small therapeutic school in Addison County. It's my first year here. It's my first year as a teacher. Prior to this, I actually was director of school programs at the Flynn Center for the Performing Arts. So my background prior to becoming a middle and high school English teacher uh, was in arts education, arts integration. Uh, that's a big part of what I bring to my teaching every day, um, theater and creative approaches to literacy. I worked with teachers for years beforehand um, doing professional development in uh, arts literacy and um, now I'm working with six students in my high school, Champlain Valley Academy, and they come from a variety of different high schools. And I love teaching stories like this to my students. Let's talk a little bit about Orbiting Jupiter. Could you give us a brief summary, who the main characters are, where it's set? It's a story about a family who brings in a foster child. His name is Joseph. And uh, the, the point of view of the story is told from the son of that family. And his name is Jack. The, they're uh, middle schoolers. And so um, I think Jack is younger than Joseph. And it's the story of integrating Joseph into their lives, into their town. And Joseph comes from, as you can imagine, uh, a complicated background. Um, what is learned pretty early on in the book is that Joseph, even as a middle schooler, has already fathered a child. And um, the child's name is Jupiter, and that's where the title of the book comes from. And it's about Joseph trying to figure out where he fits in the world, and Jack coming of age trying to understand what these differences between these two boys mean for him. Right, it's really powerful, I think, um, for the reader. You find out early on that um, Joseph has a daughter. Uh, he's never met this daughter. Right. Um, he's never had that 
the opportunity. He doesn't know what's happened to the mother, the, the young woman that he's had this relationship with. And um, Jack has so much empathy and compassion for him, even as he can't imagine his life at all. Yeah. And he it's modeled really nicely between Jack's parents and Jack, this open, courageous, bold, honest way of grappling with all the complexities that Joseph brings to their lives. And so you see through Jack a very mature narrator for his age, certainly, as he observes Joseph unfurling um, throughout, throughout the story in a positive way, unfurling, kind of opening um, to, to becoming a member of this family. Uh, but you see that so much as a, as a ripple, and I see a lot of ripples throughout this book in language and, and in themes, but you see this ripple of how he comes by that honestly through the kind of relationship that his parents um, model. It's interesting that you see the ripple in the relationship with the parents. When you said that word ripple, I automatically thought about Joseph's relationship with the cow. Oh. Yes. Do you want to explain a little bit about the cows? Because this takes place on a farm in Maine. Yeah, milking is a big part of their lives. And actually, I had thought a lot about um, his relationship with the cow. Her name is, I want to say it's Rose. It's Rosie. Rosie, yes. Rosie. And I actually thought Rosie is such an important character in the book because she is, a, she's a mirror. Um, she, she intuits uh, Joseph's soul, gentle soul, you know, and they have this dance and this conversation and oftentimes Jack realizes he's coming between the relationship and the love between this cow that, um, that Joseph learns how to milk on. He learns how to be with her. He learns how to open up so that she um, can produce her milk. And I think about Rosie so much in juxtaposition to um, the vice principal in the school. Um, the ways that she comes with no prejudice. She just senses who he is and where he is uh, as a person versus the, the vice principal and so many of the other adults in the story who bring so much prejudice and bias. Um, she's so wise in that way. Well, before we move on to the characters who can't uh, see Joseph for who he really is, I, w I really want to spend a little more time with this cow. <laughs> and I think you and I are both mothers, mm -hmm. and we know how important touch, healthy, positive, warm touch can be to children. And for Joseph, he's this middle school kid. He's obviously not going to let these parents hug him right away, these foster parents, right? right? But the cow becomes the source of that warmth and that touch and Absolutely. that, and it settles him. Yeah. And a big theme throughout the book is when Joseph flinches, when he feels unsafe, right? Uh, when something happens where he doesn't feel safe in the space, he backs, he puts his back up against the wall, which is something you see really commonly with people who have PTSD, um, people who have experienced some sort of traumatic injury. And so it's very clear he's come, he's, he hasn't just come straight from his home, he's come through a system, the juvenile justice system, um, DCF, you know, he's got all these caseworkers. He comes with all this backstory. Let's share a little of that backstory. If you could turn to page two. And, and read a little bit about where what Joseph's coming from, just to give our listeners a sense of who Joseph is in the world. Okay. Two months ago, when Joseph was at Adams Lake Juvenile, 
A kid gave him something bad in the boy's bathroom. He went into a stall and swallowed it. After a long time, his teacher came looking for him. When she found him, he screamed. She said he'd better come out of that stall right now. He screamed again. She said he'd better come out of that stall right now unless he wanted more trouble. So he did. Then he tried to kill her. They sent Joseph to Stone Mountain, even though he did what he did because the kid gave him something bad and he swallowed it. But that didn't matter. They sent him to Stone Mountain anyway. He won't talk about what happened to him there. But since he left Stone Mountain, he won't wear anything orange. He won't let anyone stand behind him. He won't let anyone touch him. He won't go into bathrooms that are too small. And he won't eat canned peaches. He's not very big on meatloaf either, said Mrs. Shroud as she closed the State of Maine Department of Health and Human Services folder. Oh, he'll eat my mom's canned peaches, I said. Mrs. Shroud smiled. We'll see, she said. Then she put her hand on mine. Jack, your parents know this and you should too. There's something else about Joseph. What, I said. He has a daughter. I think what I, um, what I really love about Jack's family is that they, Jack knows from the beginning everything there is to know about Joseph, right? That there's no secrets. There's no sense that Joseph is, has shame or should be ashamed of himself, but it's okay to fully know who Joseph is. And there's something so warm and receptive about that family, so welcoming. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really relate to the parents' no-nonsense style. Like, I really relate to that, um, being a mom and having children who are curious and open and uh, about the world. I remember this one time when my daughter was asking these questions. She must have been four, but she was asking these questions about, were women in jail too? And I... I explained that, of course, men and women both ended up in jail for various reasons, but we ended up in this conversation where we were close to the uh, Chittenden Correctional Facilities in the car while we were driving, and she asked if she could go see it. And so much of that conversation was just being able to talk to her so matter-of-fact. And I see his parents doing a lot of that so that Jack doesn't have to carry the fear, or th the fear of the unknown, but more... Uh, a clear-eyed sense of being able to see people however they show up. And I think that's what um, both you and I love about this book, but also that my students have loved about this book, is that um, Gary Schmidt doesn't treat Joseph like he's broken, like yeah. he's less whole because of the trauma he's endured. Yeah, he, in fact, he paints him in such an empathetic way. I mean, it's so easy to love Joseph. Um, he's he's gentle and and resilient he really does f seem like he has come through so much and he's so clear in purpose which feels so surprising for someone his age that in some way Jupiter has given him that clarity or that that ability to understand exactly where he is in relationship to to all the things that have happened to him in his life. Yeah. 
Not everybody sees him that way, though. No. And in fact, when he goes to school is a time where um, where he's not viewed very kindly. In fact, um, on pages 18 and 19 uh, describes Joseph's trip to school. Would you like to read that? You do that so beautifully. Sure. At least in the classes he had with me, the teachers were careful around him. Not like they were afraid of him exactly. They didn't hear what he said in his sleep at night. How he'd holler, let go you, and then words I didn't even know. Or how he'd start to cry, and then he'd only say a name. And he'd say it like it was someone he'd do anything, anything to find. Maybe if the teachers had heard Joseph late at night, they might have been a little afraid of him. But they were still careful. I guess it was enough that once, Joseph tried to kill his teacher. That would make a teacher wish Joseph wasn't at Eastham Middle. I'm really sure that's what Mrs. Holloway thought whenever she looked at him. That makes me think about how much our students read in to our body language, mm. to our um, intonation, um, that maybe we don't even intend for them to pick up, but the ways in which we as educators are settling, sending these really subtle um, signals to our students uh, and that students really interpret those um, whether it's about them or about their peers. We're there to advocate for those students. We're there to believe that all of them um, have a full potential that they can aspire to. Uh, so what you're making me think about right now is a principal I work with um, recently said you know, if, if, my te if teachers don't believe all students can learn, then they don't belong here. And that idea that if you don't believe all students can learn, that shows up. And I think, I'm not sure these teachers don't believe Joseph can learn, but there's something they believe about him that's showing up in their body language. Yeah. It's why what we believe about teaching and learning matters. It's true. One of the things I wanted to one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit though was about how oftentimes it feels easy to it, it feels easy to extend that belief to a student or to a child. Like in this book, it feels so easy to extend for Joseph that he has this whole unwritten part of his life ahead of him, where it feels so hard to do that for his dad. It, it feels so hard to do it for the adults who can't make that leap as well for him. And I wonder about the message in the book about bias, how we also carry bias for the adults in the system who don't support kids in that way. Mr. Canton, the vice principal at the school, really uh, takes a dislike to him. Yeah. Do you want to share a passage uh, where Mr. Canton is talking to Jack, um, Joseph's foster brother? Listen, Jackson, he said. I respect your parents, I really do. They're trying to make a difference in the world, bringing kids like Joseph Brooke into a normal family. But kids like Joseph Brooke aren't always normal, see? They act the way they do because their brains work differently. They don't think like you and I think. How's Jack feel about uh, Mr. Canton after he says that? I think, I think Jack sees Mr. Canton in an adversarial light where he never had to before, right? Mr. Mr. Canton was always on his side and um, had no problems with him. And remember, as a vice principal, his job is probably very um, centered around disciplinary action. 
And so um, perhaps he's come to have a really black and white view of the world and of kids. You fall into one camp, the kind that comes to his office, and the kind that doesn't. So it paints for Jack something he's trying to put his thumb on, this what is so different between me and Joseph. And Mr. Canton in some ways helps him down the path of seeing much less than you might think. You know, he wants to drive a wedge between Joseph and Jack. He wants Jack, he wants Jack to understand that he comes from different stock, that he comes from people who can do great things unlike this other kid that he would prefer to not have in the school. Mr. Canton even says to him at some point, you were never in my office before, but right. now you are. Right. And, and why is that? And he wants Jack to say, oh, I got in trouble because I'm hanging out with Joseph. Right. He wants, he wants Jack to see the clear path. And instead, Jack, much to his credit, sees a more, a more complicated picture about a world he hasn't been exposed to and uh, injustices that follow kids around in a different way than they have ever uh, presented themselves to him. So I, I love the way that his, Mr. Canton's intended uh, impact or hoped for influence he hopes to have on Jackson in some ways backfires, um, helping Jack, see clearly that not all adults are in your corner and that you really need to trust your own insights, your own wisdom of who somebody is. Well, and for me, Jack is uh, um, reminds me of so many middle school students I've worked with who despise injustice, right? Like it's an age at which when you see life is supposed to be fair, you believe in fairness and equality, and then it's not there. They It really uh, gets their dander up in a good way. I think we can really um, use that for good, right? We yeah. can really engage young people with that um, sense of injustice, right, of outrage. It's a powerful emotion for learning. And, and Jack is powerfully motivated by the injustice he sees Joseph have to endure. Yeah, and I love... I love, there's a scene at which point someone's trying to figure out if they're related, if they're brothers. Um, I won't give away any of the spoilers around it, but uh, they say, oh, you're not brothers? And he kind of stands up straight and he says, no, but I've got his back. Yeah. And I love this sense that he understands how you can stand with someone, how he can be an upstander, um, and how, in a way, that is family. Um, I love how he understands the importance of that connection with Joseph. He also doesn't really take guff from Joseph, right? I mean, a little bit. Like, Joseph always calls him Jackie. And he's like, Jack, right? Like, he's not a pushover to Joseph. And yet Joseph also, like, teaches him how to throw rocks at the church bell and make it ding, right? Like, how to... Um, teaches him really how to throw with accuracy. He teaches him, just as he's helping out Joseph with the skills that he needs to succeed in school, there's this other side, or how to succeed with the cows. <laughs> there's this other side where um, Jack is a recipient of Joseph's knowledge and understanding. Yeah, and I think that's a theme all throughout, is everyone is growing in this story. Um, everyone's changing and everyone's influencing each other. And that's, I also really love how that idea of 
being in someone's orbit comes into play with the title. Mm -hmm. I love how, yes, the reason that they're all together uh, is, the reason they're all together is because a child was born, right? The reason they're all here is all of the, the sequence of events that happened because uh, Joseph became a father. And so there's that piece of the title, but there's also just this sense that all sorts of interstellar materials orbit around this thing. They're all in orbit with each other, that there is this gravity and this, this center, and that they're in it together. If we were to name the plot of this book, how would you summarize the basic plot without giving away the ending? What's Joseph in search of? Really concretely? Yeah. I think Joseph's in search of his daughter, uh, but it's also this one true, pure thing. I mean, it's the thing that drives him is this idea of it comes out of one true, pure relationship with Maddie, with with the, the mother of, of Jupiter. It's this thing that cuts through all the chaff of everything else in his life that stands in stark contrast with what his father stood for and what his relationship with his father might have looked like. And it feels like, yes, it's a planet, but it also feels like a guiding compass, a north star. For me, that's about love. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me that it's also what we, all of us as humans, are in search of, is love and belonging, right? And our students are in search of that, too. Sometimes they don't know the best way to get that. <laughs> Sometimes uh, um, their misbehaviors uh, are hiding what they're really after, yeah. which is a sense of acceptance and belonging and love. Yeah. We all want to be loved. That's right. I was thinking, I love that this story comes from the point of view of, of Jack. And how do you tell a story about someone who may not be trusting or rushing to tell you their life story? And so the, the story comes in fits and spurts mm -hmm. and allows for a lot of spaciousness in, in the storytelling. But I love there's uh, there's a scene where the physical embodiment of ice skating um, brings about the ability for Joseph to pour out a big piece of his story, and I it's so indelibly impressed in my mind that scene because you understand that way that something that you physically embody like that when you experience such a strong emotion like love or joy or just pure connection with another person, how that could be reanimated for you when you experience it again in your body. It's a reminder that so many things are stored in our body, good and bad, the trauma and also the love and the joy. So I just really, I really, that's one of my favorite parts of the book is getting out on the ice and um, the way for him, it, the way that Gary Schmidt uses it as a, a way to do a flashback, which is sort of a necessary need for the plot, you know, to, to be able to get some of this kid's backstory when he's so closed. Yeah. I've read a lot of Gary Schmidt's other young adult novels, and um, I've loved them. And um, and this one is really different than some of his other books. So, for example, OK For Now is also a story about trauma. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's much longer. It's got much more detail in it than um, Orbiting Jupiter. And it's centered around the work of Audubon, the bird prince, right? And this library that has these bird prints is sort of this, this um, central uh, element in the story. 
Um, and then The Wednesday Wars, uh, another Gary Schmidt young adult novel, has Shakespeare at the center, actually. This book is much subtler and um, in that it has this love of reading of books at the center, both that certain books are named. Uh, um, and I'm going to let you read a passage before we talk about those books. Oh, uh, well, one of the things I loved is one of the teachers, one of the teachers goes through a transformation. She goes from having a bias uh, against Joseph to having him sort of work his way into her heart. So this is the language arts teacher at the, at the, high, at the middle school. And uh, she saw that he was carrying around Thoreau's Walden, and she asked him about it, and he explained he was, he was actually reading it for a second time. Uh, and she recommends another Thoreau book, and it writes, uh, she asked him if he liked it, and, if, and he said he'd already read it once, and he was reading it again. And she asked if he had read her favorite Thoreau book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. And he said, A Week on the what? And she took him to the library, and they checked it out together. You know how teachers are. If they get you to take out a book they love too, they're yours for life. And I loved that quote. Um, we are both smiling with joy at that quote because we do know how we are. We do. And uh, for me, one of my big goals in my English curriculum is to get books in the hands of my kids in their individualized reading that they don't mind hunkering down to read. And so... it. <laughs> It's just so, so true. And this is the part where I also just want to say uh, that our public librarian, that's where I checked out this book, The Orbiting Jupiter, our public librarian here in Middlebury, Catherine La Liberté, is amazing. And our um, high school librarian, Angela Kunkel, is amazing. And they are always my first go-to people. They're like on my speed dial when a kid finishes a book. Actually, a kid finished a book uh, recently, Jason Reynolds, Long Way Down, and that had been recommended by Angela, and he finished it, and he said, I haven't finished a book since I was in second grade, and it was such a huge breakthrough, and he's like, is there a sequel? <laughs> and the way I scrambled to find out, you know, from Angela or Catherine, what is he going to read next, and the emails that go back and forth, such a critical part of the matchmaking that goes on. We're gonna talk more about books for reluctant readers. I love that you shared that, shared that story. I love Jason Reynolds and yeah. especially A Long Way Down. We're gonna come back to that, but there are some books that are really important to Joseph in this book. And it starts mm -hmm. with, he steals Jack's copy of M.T. Anderson's The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing. Yeah. And he's reading it on the bus. And he cards it around everywhere. And I think he gets the sequel. Yeah, there's two parts, and you can get them on Amazon. They're, they're, they're real books. Yeah. Or um, at your local library. Or at your lo local library, of course. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and they're really complex texts, too. I mean, um, Joseph is uh, a voracious reader. I mean, that is a piece of it. And you have to wonder if some of his resilience comes from the fact that he is able to escape into all these worlds, that... He is not illiterate. He is not apathetic. He is 100% uh, tied in to what are the stories that are held in these books. He's a book lover. Yeah. 
the librarian and me couldn't help wonder if um, Jackson's family, the Hurd family, was named after Clement Hurd, who's the illustrator of Goodnight Moon. And partly the name just clued that in for me, right? He's a New England um, illustrator. Uh, I read Good Mo Goodnight Moon many times as a mother, um, but partly it rem I was reminded of it when uh, Joseph would stand at the window mm. in he and Jack's shared bedroom every night. And when he told, when Jack asked, Joseph said, you know, he was looking for, for Jupiter, the planet. And there's this good night ritual that has to do with Joseph standing in the cold, shivering on the hardwood floors in this chilly room before climbing in the bunk. And that imagery is really strong too. Um, but I would also uh, say that there's a lyrical quality to Goodnight Moon that I see in this book too. I feel like Gary Schmidt also does a lot of motifs or repetitions or short spare sentences that come over and over again and it is so calming to read this book the way that he paces the language the way that Jack talks is like a bedtime story mm. in that way it, it it has that effect on me too just in words beyond just the imagery and uh, the looking up into the sky I wonder about this book as a professional development read for mm. teachers. We're doing in Vermont all this work around trauma-informed practice, yeah. and this feels like an opportunity to look at what uh, trauma looks like when it shows up in a middle school, say. Yeah. I'm taking a graduate-level course with Dave Melnick right now on, on transforming trauma and trauma-informed schools. And uh, on the very first day we were together, he shared this slide of uh, a shark fin above the water. Have you ever seen this? And he says, when you see uh, a kid who fits this sort of profile, oftentimes this is what people see. This is what those teachers who have this bias might see, the shark fin, danger, different, watch out, contain this kid in this kind of post-Columbine world where when a kid doesn't fit into the mold, they're suspect, you know? And then the next slide, Underneath the water is this goldfish, this like soft and willowy goldfish with the fin above the water. And that, that has been um, my experience so, so much is that these, these kids, we, ha we as a society have, have this um, stance about what a kid like Joseph means and, and where they should belong. And that at the bottom of it, they are really just kids. Um, and, and this, this book, you know, every kid with trauma presents really differently. I mean, they're all individuals, but it certainly does try to tell the story of the whole, whole kid. Like you said earlier in the interview, uh, Joseph comes with so many dimensions that get to be, uh, fleshed out, um, through, through Jack's eyes. Uh, that's a gift to a teacher. You know, if a teacher were to read this book and think about what does it look like for me to be there for every kid and what if some of my kids are like Joseph and what if some of my kids... It's it's even harder when they don't love Walden. You know, it's harder when, when they can't get engaged in the learning in that same way. Um, but it sure helps to have more of an empathetic stance for all of our kids. 
willing to look below that the surface of the water in your metaphor to see what's behind this pain or this yeah anger and that's a big piece is not um not what's wrong with this kid but uh, this is the classic trauma informed that's what what's wrong with them but i wonder what happened that is making them struggle in this way and so it's such a gift to get to see this story through um through jack's eyes yeah so let's get back to our reluctant readers let's get back to kids i know from experience that reluctant readers kids who don't ordinarily read novels love this book that it feels alive and real for them um, you've mentioned Jason Reynolds' Long Way Down, which is a brilliant book that is reaching so many young people. Um, also about a kid who's lost his brother, right, to violence, to gun violence, and is ha- making some really hard decisions about that. All The whole book takes place, Jason Reynolds' Long Way Down, the whole thing takes place in an elevator, yep. and yet manages to be this alive, wonderful, uh, powerful narrative. Yeah, it's magical. It's it's magical in it's sort of I don't know, it's very Dickensian. It's very much like um the ghosts of Christmas past and future. I mean, the way that the way that all this the story happens to the protagonist in 60 seconds, 90 seconds. I think they have a time lapse for each floor. And so all of this stuff that happens can't possibly happen in that time. So there's that magical element um, that draws you in to how will he be changed on this journey. It's, it's, it's such a short journey from the top floor to the lobby. Um, and it's written in verse. That's important to say that not only is each chapter a floor, but it's written in verse. And so a student, my student in particular, gets to page 42 after a couple days of reading and they're so surprised how fast it can flow. Um, So there's so many, I was going to say, there are so many um, novels in verse right now that are coming out for young adults. It's a whole kind of sub-genre of books and a lot of my students read the Ellen Hopkins books. But what I love about what can happen in verse books for kids is you can get in that figurative language and the metaphors and the beautiful ideas in in that poetic form. Uh, I feel like I'm getting them to eat their vegetables and they don't even know it. (laughs) One of my favorite books from last year is a novel in verse called The Poet X. Mm -hmm. And um, just a glorious book by a spoken word poet, um, Elizabeth Acevedo that I would recommend to anyone. Um, But it's true that uh, verse carries so much uh, layered meaning. And there's a great list, the librarian at Virgin's Union High School, Angela Kunkel, sent me from bookriot.com where it has a hundred of the best YA novels in verse. So it's just the tip of the iceberg. So many have come out recently and there have been so many out there, but it's a great area. The reason I especially bring it up in, in the context of uh, Orbiting Jupiter, which is not a book in verse, they share that same spare quality, the moving of the story so quickly. He does use a lot of shorter sentence structure and repetition, so it does have, like I said about Goodnight Moon, that lyrical quality. So Book Riot has a, a great list of YA books if people are interested in diving more, and um, Poet X is on there as well. Yeah. 
I also was thinking a lot about um, Jason Reynolds' All American Boys, which he's co-written. Um, he's written one voice, which is the voice of Rashad, who is sort of the victim of some police violence. He's a, a African-American kid. And then there's another voice that's this white voice who witnessed it. And so that's another book that's really compelling for students in this moment right now. This story is told, told from two perspectives. That book is on my list as well. Um, the, uh, another book that a student last year of mine read, and now I have um, another student reading, is How It Went Down. Have you read that one? Uh, she's a Vermont author, Kekla Magoon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was a follow-up to Long Way Down. And so I was, he, he was having a hard time picking the next one. And he liked that they both had down in the title. And again, he wanted to read a lot more about um, gang violence and um, youth youth conflict. And that was uh, something he was interested in. So, so how it went down... Again, it shifts perspective over and over uh, among several characters. And so it's complicated in that way, tracking whose point of view you're getting and how the story shifts over time around a single incident, a single shooting um, that I would add to that list. I've had some great luck with Carl Hyacin's books, especially with middle school readers who are reluctant readers. They're um, books like Hoot or Flush or Chomp. They're funny uh, there are also tales about justice, but the justice is mostly about um, wildlife. So Hoot, for example, is about some endangered owls um, and sort of two kids who are going to you know, do something to save these endangered owls. And there's a little bit of hilarity in them, a lot of adventure. They take place, all, all of them, in Florida. And um, there's just something really um, accessible about those books. And once kids have read one they tend to go on and read the others. Yeah, I was reflecting that we didn't have a the, the sort of burgeoning YA books when I was in middle and high school that we have now, um, because I'm really old. Um, <laughs> and, but I was thinking about what drew me in, what was my, because I read all the time from a young age, but I have to admit, I am a huge nonfiction fan. And even as a young kid, I was reading biographies under my sheets at night of like U.S. generals. So I have to say, but I, when I was thinking back to what was my fiction candy when I was um, in high school, um, it, it struck me. Uh, that what I really loved was the Tom Robbins books. I, I hit a certain generation of people who all agree with me, and we flew through all of his books, um, Half Asleep in Frog's Pajamas, and um, he just, he, it, it reminds me a little bit of when you're talking about um, Hoot and Flush and Chomp, because he's just so audacious, and so the plot is so jaw-dropping, and it's um, fun, and it feels like a romp. Um, so I had to drop in an old throwback because I was thinking, what was my candy when I was in high school to read? So I did want to put in a Tom Robbins and see what came up for people, see if anyone agreed with me at all. And so the people who read them would read through all of them, and uh, you couldn't get enough. So that was my recollection, and I wanted to put it in my list. If you were to read this book with students, is there something particular you would do? Yes, and the thing that came up for me, first of all, this book is a, is a mirror for maybe some of my kids who end up in 
uh, my small school uh, in terms of experiences in life that are uh, complicated and layered and um, one of the things I love is it gives you the opportunity to have a rich discussion around perspectives, how others' perspectives um, can be so different about about you or you know you as the protagonist. Uh, I was thinking about the uh, danger of the single story, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and her amazing TED Talk, uh, The Danger of a Single Story. Now that is really culturally embedded. She talks about growing up um, with only literature that reflected a white experience, and she uh, she's from um, Nigeria. Nigeria. Uh, but it, it continues to go on that we have, um, we experience the world through our own particular lens and people also experience us that way. So I would really be pushing my students to think about uh, the fixed stance they have towards certain either groups of people or particular individuals and imagine what would happen if we were to upset the, that system, maybe even have them do short writing exercises uh, where they have to be an outsider in that person's story. Uh, what would happen if we changed the orbit? Um, it's so part of adolescence to be at the center of their own orbit, right? And that's what's so different for Joseph. He's not at the center. Although at one point in the book, someone says it's different to love somebody for yourself versus love somebody for their for themselves. and. Um, but still he has this sense of something outside of himself with his daughter. And I think it's so healthy for our students to figure out ways to get out of their own orbit. And this book offers, offers that opportunity to have those conversations and to use creative writing to shift um, how there are multiple stories for everyone. I love that. I think about how um, powerful that could be because on the surface, Joseph just looks like a bad boy. And then you dig beneath. It reminds me of that quote. How does it go? Um, it's hard to hate someone if when you know their story. Yes. Yeah. Is that how it goes? It, yeah. I think that we talk about the power of story to completely humanize us. That we can't be a symbol for something... Uh, that we can't turn other people into symbols of something that we either eschew or adore um, once we know their full complexity. And that living with ambiguity um, as a skill that I want to teach my students and my children, my own children, one of my goals in parenting and in teaching is to show people all the gray area and let them live in that uncertainty because certainty is such a type of death. Um, Certainty is when my red flags go up and say, why am I so certain? You know, this can't be. Uh, so that going back to wonder, wondering about our students, wondering about the people that are the hardest to work with, that is my challenge about adults in our work. How can we stay open to people who have fixed ideas about our kids? And how can we, um, how can we extend that wondering and that openness to um, the people who influence our students' lives, too. That's beautiful. Thank you.
thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your passion for orbiting Jupiter and for students. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm Judy Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Stacy Raphael for appearing on the show and talking with me about Orbiting Jupiter. If you're looking for a copy of Orbiting Jupiter, check your local library. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests, and books, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.